0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network. And each week we scoured the Internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. And this week, I'm very happy to say we have Arnie Bernstein on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, Swastika Nation, Fritz Kuhn, and the Rise and Fall of the German-American Bund. The German-American Bund is one of these ghosts of American history. It's, that's the way I think about it. We don't talk about it very much uh, because fascism, bad. Just that's kind of the way we look at it. Um, but you know, uh, before World War II and the horrendous things that happened then, it wasn't terribly clear to people that fascism was totally bad. I mean, obviously, it had some things about it that made people wonder. But if you put yourself in the mindset of the 30s, uh, people were wondering all kinds of things about fascism. Um, we've seen a similar sort of thing happen with communism in our own day. I mean, I know my students in Arnie, I think, they probably know this, that, you know, communism bad. But 30 years ago, that wasn't true. So uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting book, and it gives us – it sheds light on a moment in American history that i really forgotten, and that is the sort of flirtation of Americans with, uh, with fascism. Um, so, Bernie, thanks for – I mean, Arnie, I told you yeah, I wouldn't do that. It's going to happen, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Arnie Arnie warned me That's before okay. the show about calling him Bernie, and I just did it. So anyway, I'm sorry. So, Arnie, uh, thank you for writing the book. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Sure. So can you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Okay. Um, I have my degree from Southern Illinois University in film studies and theater, which took me nowhere fast. I do want to point out, though, that my TAs were uh, Steve James and Fred Marks, who made Hoop Dreams. Um, I got my uh, master's in um, writing from Columbia College in Chicago, and I've spent uh, – I write, um, I've written several books on Chicago history. I did a book on a a horrifying uh, true crime story. Uh, It's called Bath Massacre, America's First School Bombing that was published by University of Michigan Press. It's a true story of a madman who blew up a school full of children. Um, 38 children, six adults died, um, including the killer himself. And uh, three days later, Lindbergh took off and the whole story was forgotten. And uh hmm. it it's a terrible true story. And that was uh my last book and now I'm on swastika nation, which was just published by Saint Martin's.
0: Yeah, so why did you write Swastika Nation?
1: Well, it's it's a fun story. I went to see Inglorious Bastards. You know, like all good things it starts at the movies. And I went to see Inglorious Bastards. Uh for those of you who have not seen it, it's about among other things, a group of, uh, renegade, uh, Jewish squadron, American, uh, Jews who are parachuted into Nazi-occupied France and go on a tear hunting Nazis. And, uh, after the film, I was fascinated. What were the true stories? And I started hunting them down. You know, no thought about writing anything about it, just out of my own curiosity. And I found some really entertaining things, but, you know, then these fun things to, kept popping up that there was this movement in America totally forgotten, and various factions went after them and they kept popping up in different places, nothing really coalesced into a book per se a few academic studies, a few academic books, but nothing that told the whole sweep of the story and you know it it ultimately led me to writing this book
0: mhm well I mean I know once I was sitting in a in a seminar with a uh... I don't know why I was in the seminar because I'm trained as a Russian historian, but it was about the election of FDR or, or Truman or somebody like that. And they kept talking about the German vote. I mean, we don't think about it like that anymore, but there was actually a German vote in the United States yeah. that people had to go get. I mean, I know my yeah. people, my people immigrated from, or at least on half of, half of my family, they immigrated from Germany in the 19th century. And I don't know, no, nobody in my family ever self-identified as German, but there were a lot of people who did. Uh, yeah. so, so it's very interesting. So tell us, I mean, your, your story is really bound up in the life of Fritz Kuhn. You, you really have to tell his story in order to understand the Bund. Um, so can we begin with him?
1: Sure. Fritz Kuhn is, the most unlikely character you could possibly imagine to lead a Nazi movement. He was born in the late 1800s, um, in Germany, in, uh, in Munich, um, real nondescript childhood, um, were enlisted in, uh, World War One for the German army. He was a machine gunner, um, fought in France, um, among other things. Um, he had a couple brothers who were killed and, uh, in the war. Um, he was wounded, received the, uh, German High Cross for his, uh, his efforts, which was not um normally given to enlisted men, you know, but he earned it by his work. another enlisted man who got it was a guy named Adolf hitler mm-hmm. uh This was the first of many times they sort of crossed paths uh, in, in in either in actual uh physically or sort of a uh, in a because of their passion mm-hmm. because of their interests um because of their love of fascism. And their hatred of Jews. Um, after the war, Kuhn was, Kuhn went to University of Munich, got what is the equivalent of a master's degree um, in America in chemistry, and uh, became involved in what was known as the Free Corps. The Free Corps was disaffected uh, ex German military people. And of course, Germany's economy was ab- an absolute mess at this point. Um, it was, you know, they were, the inflation was insane. The you know the uh, loaf of bread cost how many million marks? You know sort of thing.
0: Wheelbarrow uh,
1: is the uh, image. Oh yeah. Real, oh yeah. Barrows. That's what everybody says. Yes. Now the free the free court was they were sort of a paramilitary organization. Now at that point, you know, Rosa Luxemburg and that movement were threatening the Bolshevik revolution, Bolshevik type revolution here or in. Let me start again. At that time, uh, Rosa Luxemburg and her movement were threatening a Bolshevik type revolution in Germany. And of course, the specter of the Bolshevik revolution, um, in Russia had, you know, was still weighing heavily throughout Europe and of course the United States. Free Corps went on a tear. They brutally murdered Rosa Luxemburg. Um, and Kuhn was a member of what was known as Free Corps EPP, which was named after uh, general that he uh, fought with, with in World War I and ran this uh, this division of the Free Corps, they were known as a particularly bloody version of the Free Corps and uh, particularly violent. And although there's no evidence that Kuhn either did or did not participate in anything particularly violent, um, there's no way of knowing. When he was a student at the University of Munich, he was caught pilfering from overcoats of his fellow students. He served some time for it, served a few months. Um, and in the meantime, Hitler was starting to rise and Kuhn became fascinated with what Hitler was doing. He most assuredly was a fascist, most assuredly was interested in what Nazism was accomplishing. Kuhn was then hired by a after he became, after he got out of prison by a Jewish manufacturer, um, that was a friend of his father's. Um, they manufactured various um coats, things like that, and they had cloth bolts, things like that. The owner of the factory saw that Kuhn was sniffing the bolts, taking out extra cloth. And slipping them outside to a Confederate. He wanted to have him arrested, but Kuhn's father appealed to him and said, Please, my son needs a fresh start. He had just been married. And he said, The owner of the factory said, Okay, let's give him a fresh start. And they helped Kuhn get to Mexico. Um, he wanted to immigrate to the United States, but a common way to do it, because of so much immigration that was going on, was to go to Mexico, establish a new life there, and then come up into the United States. Um, while Kuhn was in Mexico, he worked. Used his chemistry degree. He uh, worked for a factory for a while as a chemist. He uh, taught chemistry at the University of Mexico. And in the early 30s, he finally was allowed into the United States. His family followed him about six, eight months later. And he went to Detroit. A lot of Germans were going to Detroit because Henry Ford was there. And the factory held plenty of jobs within the—it wasn't just the factory. Of course, it was the mighty Ford complex. And Kuhn got a job in the Henry Ford Hospital. Now, again, he was involved in Nazi activities in Germany, and this must have been an ideal place for him. As we all know, Ford was notoriously anti Semitic. Mm-hmm. He had the, you know, the, uh, the international Jew, his tome about, you know, the evil Jews that were taking over and, you know, and, and causing America to go downhill and, you know, enveloping the world. Of course, people started boycotting Ford. This was in the 20s. People started boycotting Ford, and he issued an apology. It's believed Ford never even read this apology. Uh, one of his assistants had perfected Ford's handwriting, was able to create this letter and, you know put Ford's signature on it. As it is, um, Ford withdrew the uh, International Jew, but he never copyrighted it, which is an interesting choice for someone of Ford's acumen, And because he never copyrighted it, it went out into perpetuity. Mm-hmm. And you can still download it off the internet today. It was translated in all sorts of languages. Ford knew what he was doing. Ford knew what he was doing when he did that. And, uh of course, Ed Ford was the only one mentioned in Mein Kampf, uh, the only American mentioned in Mein Kampf. And Hitler kept a picture of Ford on his wall mm-hmm. in his office. Now, so the Ford complex must have been a paradise to Kuhn. Uh, the hospital that he worked at, he worked as an X-ray technician, had a policy of no Jewish doctors, uh, so yeah, this 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 was an ideal situation. And of course, there were you know Father Coughlin, you know, on the fringes of uh, the Detroit area in Fair Oaks because of the anti-German sentiments in America during World War One, a time when uh, Frankfurters were turned into hot dogs mm-hmm. and uh, Sauber- Liberty Cabbage and all that sort of thing. Uh, groups of Germans started coming together to sort of rehabilitate the image of the Germans, Germans in America, their, you know, their fatherland. Um, there were, you know, perfectly legitimate organizations like the Stub- von Steuben Society, and uh, which worked very hard with, you know, um, other, you know, societies, and, you know, the American government and such. But there was also a group called Teutonia, which looked back towards Hitler and the Hitler government and wanted to form their own version of that here in America. That eventually, there they was always conflict within these groups um, at the top, there was always infighting among the administration, however, um, somehow the cells that um, operated somehow seemed to work despite the, all the um, craziness at the top. that eventually morphed into something called the Friends of New Germany, which was very active throughout the country. Um, there was constant infighting at the top, and I mean constant um how the organization was going to be you know uh, led you know leaders were constantly you know trying to stage coups against one another well Kuhn joined. The Friends of New Germany in Detroit and became, who quickly established himself as a leader within the organization. Now, while he was at Ford, he first, uh, now keep in mind he's married. He has two children. He was a notorious womanizer. He would call himself Dr. Fritz Kuhn in order to puff up his, his credentials and woo women that he worked with, you know, into broom closets for, you know, little liaisons. Um, and Kuhn was, a heavy set man, fleshy face, thick glasses—you know, thick German accent—and yet a real lady killer. Hmm. For some reason, you know, he's he, like he was Clark Gable or something. It—he's it, totally a preposterous figure, and and yet he's he's totally real. Uh, in any event, Kuhn stopped—you know—the womanizing for a while and started using these broom closets to practice speeches, and he quickly, despite his thick accent became a leader in the Detroit movement. And he started taking names of people he thought were not being loyal to the Friends of New Germany and the fatherland, and providing them to the German consulate for you know whatever he thought they might do, who knows. Mm-hmm. Um, he established himself as a real leader, eventually became leader of the Midwest. You know, they were, they were the Friends of New Germany was split into three, what they called Gauss. There was the um, Eastern, there was the Midwest, and there was the West Coast and he became head of the Midwest. In 1935, he went to a convention and said that the Friends of New Germany would only succeed if they made themselves more of an American kind of group rather than a German kind of, you know, German, you know, obviously they were still loyal to Hitler, and he was still loyal to Hitler, but he felt they would succeed better if they had a program of Americanism. Uh, This was voted down, but Kuhn was really establishing himself as, you know, a real leader, as somebody who had real forward thinking. Friends of New Germany was not popular. with. Obviously, they were were drawing trouble um, here in America with the rise of Hitler. They were um, Congressman uh, Dickstein, Samuel Dickstein of New York, um, started what eventually became the House Un-American Activities Committee, HUAC, to investigate both uh, Nazism in America and communism. And they started to investigate the Friends of New Germany. This was becoming an embarrassment, a total embarrassment to Hitler and to the Nazi government, and they got word from the German high command that the group was to be disbanded, Mm -hmm. completely disbanded by the end of 1935. Now, the leader of the group couldn't believe this. He went over to Germany, and they said, it's over. This is where Fritz Gunt comes in, in a big way. He was um, dubbed the leader of what remained of this group. There was a convention that he held in 1936, in March of 1936, in Buffalo, New York, of all places. And the group was rechristened the German-American Bund, because now they were going to be Americans, and it was going to be German-Americans, but they were going to have their focus on America and being Americans. And, of course, their dream of a fascist state in America, their own swastika nation, as it will, uh, in America. Now, what he was left with, despite all their infighting, the Friends of New Germany had a pretty decent constitution um, and had a Series of like family um, retreats and things like that. Um, they had their own version of the SS, which was known as the OD, and uh, their own growing version of uh, the Hitler Youth, the other youth camps and things like that. But it was not really solidified. Under Kuhn's vision, he started pulling this stuff together and really solidifying it um, with, and the constitution was. We worked and drilled down into all sorts of bureaucracies, and you know what various units were to do. He built up the publishing wing. He created several businesses. He built up the OD. He built up the family camps. If he had been a businessman in the middle of the depression, he would have been a genius, because he really was able to marshal this movement and make it a profitable and movement that, you know, people across the country, granted a minority, a very vocal minority were interested in and wanted to be a
0: part of. So it sounds to me as if Kuhn had uh, sort of struck on something in uh, the hearts of many German Americans. If that's the was his constituency. In other words, it, it it was a seems like it was a popular group that it had things to offer Americans. What well, what did it offer its constituents? I mean, again, I, uh, I have to put this in the right perspective. I mean, we don't think of political groups in the United States as uh, nationally focused anymore. There is no Latino party. There is no black party. There is right. no white party. It just doesn't exist anymore. Now, in the 1930s, uh, this was a little bit different because from what you have said about the structure of the Bund, it sounds to me a lot like European political organizations uh, that were socialist and fascist. That is, they not only uh, uh, campaigned uh, to put people in office, but they also ran things like youth camps. And they had paramilitary yeah. organizations. The communists had them, exactly. socialists had them, uh, you know, all of the kind of forward-looking political parties had them. So that, that that doesn't sound to me very distinctive. But what was it that really attracted people to the Bund?
1: I think it was the discipline and the order and that Germans felt alienated in, uh, in America. A lot of, certainly a lot of immigrants, and it was a lot of German immigrants mm-hmm. felt alienated as well as... Uh, people who had grown up you know, with German heritage in this country. Now, the Bund had something that was known as the leadership principle. It's a standard of any fascist organization. You do whatever the leader says. He is in charge. No questioning of his actions whatsoever. So that was Fritz Kuhn. And he was known as the Bundesfuhrer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they felt the Fuhrer should only be given to Hitler. He was the only one worthy of that title. But Kuhn wanted to be the Fuhrer in America, so he went from president, which was the... Um, the former title of the Friends of New Germany, the last title of their leader anyway, they went to various titles. And he said, no, I am the Bundesfuhrer. And so that's what he was, the Bundesfuhrer. He could be a Fuhrer too. And Mm -hmm. in his mind, that's what he was. And certainly under this leadership principle, he controlled everything. Mm -hmm. Um, He he was in charge of everything, including the money, which of course eventually led to his downfall. Mm -hmm. But the the Bund was well-organized. Yeah, we we talk about you know German order, and for quite a good time, that's what they had. Mm -hmm. Now, after he established the constitution, he decided, well, we have to get our blessings from the great peer himself. So they went to Germany during the Olympics, the thirty-six Olympics, and a former member of the OD, who now was a functionary in some one of the many you know German bureaucracies, was able to swing a. A meeting with Hitler and Kuhn and some of his uh, top, top ranking people. It was nothing more than the standard grip and grin photo shoots that we see politicians go through, you know, it, through countless years. And it, it was nothing, you know, it, it, it was, Hitler was just another photo op. Basically. He had no clue who these people were. Um, he asked him a couple questions. He gave them an autographed picture <laughs> um, yeah. They they had they had raised money for what was known as the German Winter Fund, um, which supposedly was uh, a, a charity that would help you know poor people in the downtrodden in Germany throughout the winter. We all know what happened to the poor and downtrodden in Germany. So it was you know it was uh, one of those kind of charities, and they gave them what They referred to as the Golden Book, which was a book explaining everything that German Americans under you know pro Hitler you know German America anyway uh, was doing. Um, Hitler said to Kuhn, he shook his hand. He said, "Go back and continue your fight." Mm-hmm. Now to Kuhn, this was the blessing that he had been looking for. To Hitler, it was just a, an offhand remark right. that he would have made to anyone. You know, any you know, go back and continue your fight to any sort of person who came in and said, "Oh, we love you." You know, pure. Mm-hmm. And uh but Kuhn took that as it was his blessing. He went. He came back to the United States, convinced he was now been given Hitler's, you know, go ahead. You must, you know, lead this great fight. You must become, you know, the official Nazi party in America, in Kuhn's mind anyway. So he decided now they had to make a presidential endorsement. They, Ro- Rose, Ro- uh, Roosevelt, of course, they could not have. They they believed he was Jewish. Rosenfeld, you know, was the constant, uh, mm-hmm. that, was, that was, he was hiding his real Jewish heritage. You know, all the Jews in his cabinet, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so they endorsed Alf landon <laughs> um, now, now, Germany was outraged and people are always, what is going on here? The German ambassador immediately dismisses him. We want nothing to do with German elections. With, with, the German ambassador said, we want nothing to do with the American elections. We have no interest in influencing American elections. They are doing this without our blessing whatsoever. Um, that didn't matter he to want, Kuhn. He wanted to be the Führer in America and he was the Führer in America, mm-hmm. uh, marshaling all these people. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, they held, you know, as I said, they had businesses, they had their own newspaper, which was spread nationwide. Uh, they, you know, uh, various gals, various little cells. They really drilled down. They had all, you know, they they had a major, uh, presence in California. They, they were headquartered in New York. Mm -hmm. Kuhn eventually left Detroit and went to New York and, uh, that's where their that's where their main headquarters were. I'm in Chicago. They had major presence here in Chicago and in Milwaukee too.
0: I mean, I have to say it, and this is not an offhanded remark. If you're going to be an anti Semite and fight uh, 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 fight Jews, New York is the place to do it. I, you know. Oh yes. Yeah. <laughs>
1: and that, that, <laughs> what was he thinking? That, that, I, <laughs> Oh yeah, well you want to be where the front lines are, I yeah. suppose. It was
0: uh <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I doubt he'd do very well there. But let me ask a couple of preliminary questions. One is, and, and this is a very basic question, how many people are we talking about here? At its height, how large was okay. the uh was the, the, the Bund, the German American Well, they
1: were notoriously secretive about their I bet they were <laughs> people there. They were they also they were bad record keepers. <laughs> the FBI was investigating them. Um there, you know, it, they also had a membership, uh they had various membership uh levels. One of which was a friend of the organization which were anonymous donors, you know, uh, sure. supervisors as it we were, who didn't have to be part of it. Um, you could not be an official German citizen because they wanted to be an American, but they had a loophole where if you're applying for citizenship, you could become a member. Um, so uh, anywhere from, you know, depending on estimates, between ten to thirty thousand mm-hmm. right but again variety of sources there's never there's it, it's got really it. hard to say how many yeah. exactly got were. It.
0: but it put a pretty tiny group all things considered.
1: yeah and you know, Brian, most, I mean, the majority of German Americans wanted nothing to do with
0: them yeah, yeah no I imagine that they did not want to have anything to do with them so another question another basic question uh <laughs> before. <laughs> Kuhn was a, a master at shooting himself in the foot, but before he did that again, um, what exactly was the platform of the German American Bund? What did they want to do? When you read their material, what did what did they say they wanted to do? Um, an Aryan country.
1: They wanted, a, you know, the, the title of the book was exactly what they wanted: a swastika nation, free of Jews. Of minorities, uh, blacks, you know, and they did not use polite words for blacks. Obviously, um, they wanted their own version of Nazi Germany, and that's of course where the youth camps came in, where the OD, their version of the SS, came
0: in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they proposed and they proposed anti, propose anti-Jewish legislation, such as ha- had been passed in Germany. Did they they are, did they talk about back to Africa kind of things, or were they of that ilk?
1: Um, not offhandedly, they certainly didn't want. They certainly weren't in favor of blacks. Now, they, you know, they, you know they, they, um, they used a lot of Nazi propaganda, which showed, you know, how awful, you know, the darker races were, yeah, you sure. know, infecting the, the, you know, the pure Aryan blood, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, mostly, they were anti-Semitic yeah. and wanted nothing to do with Jews. And the Jews controlled Hollywood, the pre- the standards. Sure, yeah, these are not, these are not.
0: They, they didn't make any of this stuff up. Uh, as yeah. as fantastical as it is. So uh, I'm just trying to get a measure of their of craziness in the 1930s context. And it sounds like they were pretty crazy. And most Americans would think of them as pretty crazy. I mean, one difficulty with their platform is if you want to have an Aryan nation, uh, most white Americans aren't German, of German descent. I mean, maybe oh, they were yeah. at that time, but, but not a great, huge majority. Like, what about the Italians and the Irish and the English and right. you know, all these they, other, they, they, you know...
1: Their predecessor group and the Bund actually maintained this as well. Was they had a real difficulty when uh, the Lindbergh baby was kidnapped and Bruno Hauptmann yeah. was, uh, was was found guilty. Well, it was uh, it was the Jewish controlled press that, of course, you know did that. You know, this poor Iranian baby was killed and the poor German Bruno Hauptmann was so was framed by the Jewish press. Um, you know, they, they they were managed to weasel their way around anything. Uh, but of course you get a group like this, you know, and, and let me start again. And they were they their their scope was pretty wide. As I say, they they had these camps, they would get thousands of people would come to these camps on the on the weekends and you know, they'd march, they did flags, the youth movement was, was pretty extensive. They you know, they even had I wouldn't call it an exchange, but they went for an educational trip to Germany, the youth members of the youth movement, to meet with their counterparts. Um in the Hitler Youth. That was the only kind of endorsement that Germany ever gave them. Uh-huh. They, Germany gave them propaganda and they let them meet with the Hitler Youth kids, but they kept them at arm's length. Um, at one point, um, you know, they, they, it, they became such an embarrassment. Um, they were, they, you know, the FBI was desperate to prove they were spies. Of course, they couldn't be spies. Kuhn, isn't it? Kuhn was not subtle enough for spy work, workers, they believe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, They Eventually, the German government denounced them. Imagine being such an embarrassing Nazi that even Hitler doesn't want anything Mm -hmm. to do with him. Mm -hmm. uh, Kuhn went to Germany to appeal, and they said, we'll give you propaganda, but we want nothing to do with you Mm -hmm. whatsoever. Mm -hmm.
0: Right. Well, this is because he was getting – I mean, you know, the the party itself was – I mean, and this is an interesting legal question. It sounds to me like the party was persecuted. I mean, that the government was actively coming after them in a oh, kind of yeah. prejudicial way. Like we're going to get oh, these yeah. guys, and, you, know? you know,
1: you have the right to be obnoxious in this country. Yeah. You know, like it or not, you have the right to be obnoxious, but it wasn't just the government who went after them. Uh, there were other factions that went after them pretty extensively. Mm-hmm. They, you know, you it's unpopular speech, and uh, how do you counter free speech with more free speech? But mm-hmm. you know other methods as well, which were you know employed dutifully
0: by other players in this story. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about about them? Uh, you know at all? I mean, I don't know. Oh, La- certainly. LaGuardia, certainly, and, you know Thomas I Dewey will, is another I'll, person you mentioned. I mean, these are people that just like they were great people to hate. These Bund yeah. people, yeah.
1: And I'll tell you something: the people who went after them, I will never. I could write a thousand books. I will never have this great a cast of characters. (laughs) That's true. Um, (laughs) One of the people who went after them was Walter Winchell. Yeah. He recognized very early on the threat that, you know, American Nazis were, and he savagely attacked them in his column. Fritz Kuhn became almost his punching bag. Um, he came up with all sorts of names for him. Um, you know, Fat Fritz Kuhn, but there oh there were all kinds of names he he called Kuhn and Kuhn hated him. He said, I will when I become you know Furer, I will hang him from the highest, you know, pole in front of the Stork Club, which was of course uh Winchell's hangout and Winchell just enjoyed tormenting him. Mm-hmm. And uh but one um as I say, Kuhn was never stopped being a womanizer. Never stopped being a womanizer, even though he was, you know, married, two children he was constantly out on the town. And it was this big open secret that he was mm-hmm. running around on the town getting drunk. One night, he was in the store club. And the Winchell <laughs> saw him. And the two of them locked eyes. And Coon blinked and walked out. Yeah. The Winchell carried a gun oh, because boy. a couple of Nazis had attacked him. A couple of brown-shirted guys had attacked him when he came out of his barber shop one day. You know, beat him pretty good, too. They knocked out a, um, a crown that he had in his mouth. Um, so he started carrying a gun just for personal safety, but after when he saw Kuhn in the store club, he just became so enraged. He went to the bathroom and he moved the bullets. <laughs> yeah. It's a good precaution. Um, yeah. Now, speaking of bullets, um, there were another group that went after the, uh, the Bund as well. Um, this one is never found in the academic studies, which I always i found really fascinating. I read a lot of doctoral dissertations and master's thesis, sure. and you know, various <laughs> academic books. But the boys of the Jewish mafia,
0: yeah, right. were incensed by them. <laughs> they, were, guys.
1: they were not pious men. No, they were not. But they were. They. They were. <laughs> I. I. I, re- I use the metaphor of the golem, this story yes. of the uh, the man of clay who was uh, created by a rabbi to go after the anti Semites, right. and he was a little scary and a a little dangerous, but he was a fighter for his people. Mm -hmm. And I sort of used that as a a metaphor. Meyer Lansky, who was you know, the the mob's accountant, as it were, um, and one of the geniuses who, you know, such as it was, that created a mob like a business, the the bigger than U.S. steel line is is what he said when he described the mob were bigger than U.S. steel. He, uh, He was approached by Nathan Perlman, who was a respected judge in New York. And by Rabbi Stephen Weiss, who led the Reform movement, the Reform Judaism movement in America. And he was approached by them secretly. Obviously, you know, top Judaism could not go to, you know, a Lansky, as it were. And they said to him, look, you guys have means and methods. We need to put a stop to these people. You guys have means and methods. What can, you know, can you use it? And Lansky said, we'll be happy to. Mm. But, you know, just a couple of stipulations. Um, The uh, Perlman said, no killing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Lansky found <laughs> killing. No killing. Break no their
0: legs. We don't care. But don't yeah, care. We break their. You
1: can break their legs and uh, no hits in the head either. Okay. interestingly
0: enough, although that one was violated yeah. often. Okay. Um, but okay. as far as I could tell,
1: there was no killings. Um, Blansky asked in return that he not that the Jewish press not um, refer to him as gangster, not ever you know um, give him bad press. Yeah. Um, and Perlman said he would see what he could do, and then they went into action. Now, normally, no, they would not accept outsiders in the mob. You know, for good reasons. No outsiders sure. wanted to be in the mob. Sure. However, people volunteered. They said, we want to get in on this. Agreed. And so Bugsy Siegel, of all people, helped train helped train these um, civilians, as it were, to go after the Bundes. And they broke up Bundus meetings um, and Bundus legs as well. And they were very effective people in this. longings Willman, who was sort of the, uh, a Jewish Tony Soprano, he controlled Jersey, um, he developed an army of ex fighters. Oh, great. Who and they went after them big time. Um, out in California, there was Mickey Cohen who uh has been portrayed in various movies mm-hmm. um Gangster Squad uh, among other things, but never accurately. But he enjoyed doing it. He got a great kick out of going after these people. And there were some, you know, there was they were infiltrating in into the movie studios, things like that, and screenwriters approached him and said, Hey, can you do something about this? And he sent his boys and um Cone delighted in it, he, in his uh, autobiography, which, you know, a, a, as told to kind of thing, he just delighted in it and talked how much he enjoyed doing it. Um, I live in Chicago, there was a guy named Jacob Rubinstein here in Chicago. He and um, Barney Ross, um, the fighter, the three-time prize uh, winner of three titles, um, they were in a gang, they actually, his boys, they met his boys, they delivered envelopes for Capone, um, at a dollar an envelope, there's always a Capone angle. And, uh, in Chicago, anyway, <laughs> the, uh, anyway, they, they would hang out in a pool hole, uh, in Lawndale, which was the big Jewish neighborhood. And there would be a phone call. They get, they wait for the phone call. They say, okay, the Bunda meeting here. And they would go and they would beat the crap out of them. You know, and having Barney Ross as a, you know, boxer was certainly, um, useful. Um, and in fact, Rubenstein's brother said he would come on and he, blood on him, and he would just was enjoying what he was doing thoroughly. Um, Rubenstein, you know, Eventually changed his name to Jack Ruby and went yeah. to Dallas, mm-hmm. and we know the rest of the story there. Yeah, right, and that was all in the Warren Report. All his fund activities were in the Warren Report. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I spent so, my life researching this thing. It was yeah. it was a lot of fun. Did the
0: authorities <laughs> it, just overlook all this stuff? I mean, did they know about it? I mean, the FBI was um, was all over these guys, and so
1: yeah, and uh, there were things that got overlooked eventually. in fact, one one of Us uh, Wilman's people, who was his, I think, his chauffeur, and eventually became this top uh, hitman, he went to jail eventually, he's still in prison for what I know, he's an elderly man now. Um, he was asked, did you ever tell them you were Jewish? He said, the only thing we told them was with a baseball bat. <laughs> they had fun. Oh, they they. And, but eventually it stopped. Um, in fact, the Italians, um, Luciano said, can we help you? And Lenski said, no, this is our fight. We're doing this on our own, but thank you. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And But eventually the Jewish press started reporting on this and you know, it was a shame. You cannot do this. This is Jews don't fight. Mm-hmm. And uh it was the first time Lansky was uh mentioned as a gangster in the press. Was you know, they called him a gangster in the Jewish press. It was the first time he was ever, ever called a gangster. Really? Really? And you know, he was very angry about this, but there was nothing he could do. And eventually Perlman said, You know what, we're getting bad press, Judge Perlman came back. Bad press Please stop. And so Lansky stopped, and Mickey Kong, you couldn't tell him anything. So he, uh,
0: yeah, our completely illegal campaign to destroy these people is getting bad press. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly.
1: But they were admired, like I said, civilians wanted to be part of it.
0: Yeah, right. And other,
1: other, of course, there were other people who went after buns. There were protests. Um, there was a uh, riot at one uh, bun meeting where a bunch of Jewish war veterans snuck in and at, the, at an appointed time, they put on their caps and they went to work yeah, and there right. was a huge riot out there. They were, you know, it was,
0: it was a pretty remarkable thing. Yeah. It sounds like uh, it. So before we, I, I, there are a whole bunch more to say. So I want to get to these things. Tell us about the Madison Square Garden rally, because when you, uh, whenever uh, the Bund makes history books uh, and I don't know if it does very often, or as mentioned, there's always these pictures of the Madison Square Garden rally. In fact, you have one. Right, and one. it's on yeah. YouTube, too. There's great pictures on YouTube. Right, so you tell it? us about um, how that yeah. transpired.
1: Okay, they wanted to honor George Washington, the great American fascist, and uh, for his birthday in February of 39. And this was going to be Kuhn's great moment. He was the great leader. Um, and they had 20,000 people packed into Madison Square Garden, listening to speeches, you know speech after speech, you know, this you know, in Madison Square Garden, when they signed the contract, you, they had the right to do it. Um, speech, they said, no swastikas, no anti-Semitism, you know, in your speeches. Of course, they completely, yeah, they have swastika banners and things like that. You know, their speeches were their speeches. And uh, in fact, uh, Dorothea Thompson, the journalist, was there. She was the first journalist who was kicked out of Nazi Germany for a very unflattering portrait she did of Hitler. And she started heckling. And they ended up throwing her out of the, uh, of the arena. Now, outside, there were 20,000, as I say, not, you know, these Bundes packed in listening to these speeches. Outside, there were 100,000 people, <laughs> yeah, literally 100,000 right. people <laughs> protesting, and all sorts of groups, too. There were Trotskyites, there were, you know, Democrats, Republicans, black, white. Um, it was insane. And, uh, you know, there all sorts of things. You know, I, I can't go into all the detail here, right. I go into extensively in the book, but uh, somebody punched a horse. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it was know. remarkable. And uh, afterwards, Fiorello LaGuardia said, this is it. No more. Not in my city. Now, LaGuardia, LaGuardia was half Jewish. His mm-hmm. mother was Jewish. That. He rep- yeah, he was the perfect representation of the ethnic <laughs> yeah. coffee pot in America when you yeah. think about it. That's funny. Italian father, Jewish mother, yeah. although his mother was certainly Italian, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, we're not doing it. No more. No more. And so he called Thomas Dewey, who was the um, at that time, the district attorney, um, before his governorship and run for presidency. What are we going to do about this? They held a meeting behind closed doors. Obviously, you can't free speech was not what they could do. So they went after the Capone, uh, angle and they started looking into taxes. What were the taxes paid on all this, uh, you know, on all the little trinkets that they sold? There were various taxes that had to be. So they raided the bond's office looking for, you know, tax returns, for the books, all these different elements, and this was partially what led to Kuhn's downfall, but what they found within the books was, again, keep in mind, Kuhn was in charge of everything, all the money. He was embezzling funds and uh, forging checks and things like that to fund his romances. And that eventually led to his downfall. I'm shocked. They, I, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like, like, I'm shocked by this gambling going on yeah, in your exactly. casino. <laughs> um, it was, uh, but, uh, yeah, they, uh, that's, that's how, and his, he had a harem. It, it, it's, it's, as I say, I'll never, this cast of characters great again. One woman he called the Golden Angel. He wrote these mash love notes to her that look like something a 12 year old would write. And, uh, you know, he, he promised that she was going to be his, his next wife. And, of course, he, you know, his wife, he wasn't going to divorce. And she knew what was going on, too. Um, there was another woman um, who had been married nine times. This was like her big claim to fame. She had been married nine times. And she had written articles about how to find a husband and things like that. Um, and she was a former Miss America that Kuhn was involved with or at least she said she was a former Miss America. And the papers reported that she was a former Miss America. And all the histories I read said she was a former Miss America. And I kept looking at the Miss America, where is she? So I contacted the Miss America people. They had no record of her. She mm-hmm. said she was Miss America. And she was not. They well, they know, a lot of people do. <laughs> they were perfectly matched in a way because they were just so both right. self-aggrandizing. Right. Um, but she was approached by the government and agreed to have the, her love nest wired and uh they had uh they, they you know they 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 caught him on on uh, you know that tape but they caught him uh you know they they wired uh the recordings of their you know their little love making sessions and she led him to conversations um this that and the other thing getting him to implicate himself but what they found was she had to go to see a doctor because this thing was driving her crazy she had to see a psych uh but a doctor for her nervous condition mm-hmm. and her fluttery heart. When one of the government agents went to the doc and said, you know, um, you know, just to ask some questions, the doctor said, by the way, you might want to see this. He showed a check of how he was being paid, and it was signed by Fritz Kuhn, and it was off the German-American Bund's uh, accounts. Mm-hmm. Third case of hmm So that's how they went after him. They got him on embezzlement, and forgery. Right. Um, it was a massive trial in New York in um, the fall of of uh, 1939. Yeah. Uh, Walter Winchell covered it. And he had the time of his life in the New York Daily News. He covered it like theater, and it was complete parody. Yeah. And he, it, was, it was outside of his regular column. He just enjoyed the living daylights out of the thing, too. And it was it was fun to read <laughs> yeah. when I was doing my research. <laughs> it, was, it was just a hoot to read. Um, so they got Kuhn on... Embezzlement. So let me let me and, stop you
0: right there, and, and I'm going to read something that's in the book. This is this is yeah. Kuhn, uh, before he is um, to be tried on embezzlement. I think June 1939. It uh, he says, uh, "It is perfectly clear to me that no means will be eschewed by our opponents to eliminate me. I am being persecuted and defamed because I am the leader of the German American Bund." That just strikes me as true.
1: In a sense, yeah, he was because they, you know. And I wrote this book forward, in that we didn't know what was happening in Nazi Germany right. at the time. Um, and yeah, he was; he had freedom of speech. <laughs> so do a lot of people. And yeah, the FBI right. was looking into him anyway. Right, but um, then they get uniform to investigate these people anyway. Yeah. Um, but and as I say, they weren't able to nail him on freedom of speech.
0: Right. Yeah. They nailed
1: him on taxes. They nailed him on embezzlement.
0: Yeah, that's and, well, right. I got it. Well, but sure. And that's, he should not embezzle money. That's absolutely true. Uh, But to say that there was a subtext, a subtext that they were actually looking for something to get him on. I mean, that, it seems to me.
1: And they were also worried about him being a spy. They were
0: desperate to prove that he was a spy. Yeah, they were.
1: Uh And there may have been spies within the organization. um, But there's, you know, there may have been, you know, a few people here and there who were doing some spy work. um, But
0: in essence no they were not spies they were too obvious to be spies right so he gets and, sentenced he gets sentenced to a couple of years in the slammer in thirty nine, Actually, um, actually got sent
1: to 8
0: 8 years yeah and, so anyway uh, he gets, so he gets sentenced and then in, in 1943 uh he loses his citizenship is that right yeah well the bund kind of struggled on
1: without him and after the bombing of pearl harbor of course they they were disbanded um, that you could not continue a, right. a pro-German organization like that, right. pro-Hitler organization right. like that, right. and uh, he was um, he was uh, yeah released, and uh, but he was stripped of his citizenship. And on what, what ground?
0: I mean, I, you know,
1: that he, he was that he had, uh, that he was pro-Nazi, and that he had lied about his uh, when he had signed his citizenship papers. He said he was loyal to the United States, when in fact he was loyal to you know Hitler. And had proved it and was, you know, was, uh, had lied in essence when he
0: declared his loyalty to the United States. I don't so know. It's he was just, stripped of citizenship. Pretty care. remarkable, though. I mean, I was like, I, you read right. those documents. It was a pretty remarkable way to strip somebody of their citizenship. I am mean, you know, I'm no friend of Fritz could I have to say that. But here's one of these cases in which it seems to me that um, they were very willing to bend uh, the, uh, the, the letter and spirit of the law in order to get this guy. Um, yeah. I mean, and- he, yeah. He was a bad guy. And he had some dumb views, <laughs> yeah. and it was a time yeah. of war. <laughs> but,
1: and as I, as I said before, if he, if he had led a corporation, he would have been a genius. Yeah. He wasn't. He I, it was like all you know, like so many others. It was you know, he did not think with his brain. Um, yeah, right. And that yeah, ultimately gotcha. led to his downfall. Yeah. Um Say no more? But, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, we know. <laughs> right. But uh, he. Uh, yeah, yeah. Were rules broken? No. Were they? Curved? with they bent?
0: Well, but then he was charged yeah. as an enemy after being stripped of his citizenship. He wasn't deported yet, and then he's charged as a as a spy.
1: Yeah, well, no, not or something. a spy. I don't he know is, what he's charged
0: as. as a, he as a, was uh, never charged as a spy. He was never charged
1: as a an spy. enemy agent. But or... he was. Yeah, he was. Yeah, uh, a sympathizer, and he was sent to an internment camp, and because he had lied about his, his his about his loyalty to the pure. Yeah. That was that was the big thing. So he was sent to an internment camp. After the war, he was deported, um, and he said to the people who were, the, the two guys saying, hell, Winchell, I will live to piss on his grave. And of course, Winchell print, print, printed that in yeah, column. Right. Um, and he was sent back to Germany and um, persona non grata, uh, tried a couple times on the vacation and uh, served some time in a German prison. Um, when he was sent to this German prison, a news story came out. Um, and that was, he was involved with a young woman. Again, um, who said, oh, he is going to marry me. He is promised, you know, he will marry me. And of course, Mrs. Kuhn said, What well, she's crazy. Uh, this woman wa- worked at a, uh, army, American army base as a waitress and she was canned immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kuhn escaped, uh, disappeared. Um, they eventually found him. He applied for a chemist license. Uh, he applied for a chemist license, um, under the name G Kuhn, Um, the first initial G and then Kuhn. And they said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, and they, they ran the, the you know the fingerprints and all that. And, of course, it was Fritz Kuhn, and they arrested him. And the arresting officer said to him, you know, if you hadn't followed this Hitler guy, none of this would have happened. And Kuhn said, who would have thought it would end like this?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, I kind of sympathize and, with Kuhn a little bit about that. I mean, yeah. and, uh, and, I mean and this is not an uncommon
1: story. He's, he's such a clueless figure. He's, yeah. he's, he's such a buffoon.
0: Well, nobody, you know, this is not an uncommon story with sort of 20th century totalitarian movements. I mean, it happened with communism too. Who thought it would have been that, you know, so well-intentioned it seemed, you know, obviously Nazism and fascism have some things about them which are completely anti-liberal and and very unsavory, particularly the racism. Um, But, you know, I mean, genteel racism was very common at the time. Oh, yeah. There were the gentlemen's
1: agreements and things like that. In in Hollywood, where they were present, um, you know, someone like Louis Meyer couldn't get his kid into a school, uh, an exclusive school because he was Jewish. He was the most powerful man in Hollywood yeah. and yet could not get his kid into a school. Yeah. I mean, lots um, of
0: things were restricted for not, and not just Jews for Catholics. And, you know, there's oh, yeah, it was not an uncommon thing. This kind of racial consciousness was not, you know, it was illegal, but it was not, it was common. I mean, I guess the thing about Kuhn that I find super interesting is, is that, you know, he just really bet on the wrong horse in a huge yeah. way. Uh, he, he, he just,
1: did. And in fact, the, uh, One of the camps, there was um, a a section in the book about the city of Southbury, Connecticut, where they were trying to build one of the camps, and they more or less chased them out, and the uh, Bundes said, okay, how would you like it if we sold uh, this land to Father Divine? the black uh yeah, cult right. creature and <laughs> also another persona non grata, you know, how would you like right. it if we sold this land to Father Divine? That's who we're gonna sell it to, of course they didn't. Right. But uh yeah. right. you know you think you think we're bad.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. You so what deal. is what is Fritz Kuhn's legacy, if, if any? I mean he he sounds like such... I don't
1: know that there is one. Yeah. I mean that he you know that once upon a time in America there was this crazy movement that Kind of swept the nation. That did make headlines. That did manage to pack twenty thousand people into Madison Square Garden and got a hundred thousand people outside wanting to kill them. Yeah. Um, and has more or less been forgotten. And that's always been my in my books. I've always been fascinated by stories that are forgotten in history and um, exploring them. And of course, you know, I mean, you have all oh, this crazy cast of characters: LaGuardia and Dewey, you know, teaming up to go after them. The mob teaming up to go after them. They were small, loud. And for a moment, you know, in, you know, in, in sort of a perverse way, important.
0: Yeah. Well, this is what I'm trying to understand. And, you know, even in our lifetime and being in Chicago, you know, this, I remember the first time I ever heard of Skokie, Illinois. Which I have visited many times. It's a very pleasant place. Um, it's right. in Chicago. It's a Jewish suburb. I don't know if it's Jewish anymore, but it was largely Jewish. And then these uh, neo Nazis were going to march through it, right? Just a free speech. And that case. was my high school years.
1: I was actually really? there. <laughs> I was there the day they were supposed to come in. That I was must have one been one completely of the people at village Hall waiting
0: for them. Did you get a snow day um, or anything? I mean, <laughs> we're uh,
1: right out of school. Sorry, it was there was a, it's, it's some severe court cases going on, and they wisely decided not to speak yeah. in Kentucky, And they were given a uh, a. You know, it, that's another long and involved story, but they were, they were, in essence, were made a deal where they could speak downtown in yeah, Chicago with right, all right. these plexiglass shields. While well, they you know, were when I I was
0: growing them. up in Kansas at the time, and and I remember uh-huh. thinking, these people are just absolutely nuts, and they are oh. attention, they're attention mongers, they're, they're, yeah, they just I want the attention of the press. Nazis. Yeah, they weren't yeah. Nazis, they were a bunch of goons who put on their little brown shirts. Yeah. And yeah. Around but you know, I mean, I'm trying to differentiate these people. Uh, who I can remember myself, um, at least having read about them in Time magazine, Um, and and just the idea of launching a protest in Skokie. Skokie's pretty quiet. (laughs) Yeah,
1: well, well, it was. But you know what came out of that,
0: too, with the (laughs) Illinois Holocaust Museum?
1: People did not talk about, you know, there were more survivors there. Yeah, oh, there were, yeah, no, yeah. And they started talking after that father, a friend of mine. funny
0: know, story. Was I was visiting, I was visiting in Skokie. I think I probably told this story before, but like I said, I'm from Kansas and I was going to school in Iowa. And one of the people I was going with, she, she lived in Skokie and we weren't dating or anything, but she said, you want to go visit Chicago? And I said, sure, I'll go visit Chicago. I've never been there before. And so we drive up there from, from Iowa, Cornell College. And, uh, and I go to her house and, uh, the, and it's a, you know, it's a nice house in Skokie and and there's her mom and two sisters. And so, on. so I'm sitting there waiting, you know, and I see a, I see, a, uh, I see a, a a magazine there. I'm just sitting there waiting. I don't know what we're going to do. Go to dinner or something. And there's a magazine. It's called like, you know, the, the Jewish word or something. I pick it up and look right. at it. And like the, uh, the, the, the headline story on the front uh, the sort of cover is the dangers of assimilation. <laughs> There I am. Yeah. <laughs> I like I think I am the face of the situation. <laughs> so anyway, you go back to the uh, um the, yeah, it's very Yeah, funny and you know,
1: it. there is you know, I mean in the recent days too, and I've been thinking about this a lot, mm-hmm. in recent days there's been that um effort in North Dakota for this white supremacy. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. To take over the town. Right, and in, in that they they remind me of Kuhn because they're a bunch yeah. of Pobanjays.
0: Yeah, they are really you know, yeah. who,
1: who have stand no chance whatsoever, but they're doing their marching around with their little swastikas and, you know, their little imagination that oh, we're gonna we're gonna, you know, establish this this perfect colony within the United States. it will be Jew free and, you know, black free, pure Aryans and as, again, it, it it you know, history repeats itself, you know, as they say, once is mm-hmm. Was it first time it's strategy, second time it's farce? Yeah. Of course, the first time it was farce. Too. I mean, I guess one like, thing yeah.
0: that occurs to me is that uh, the thing that Kuhn and the Bund show is that fascist nationalist groups are impossible in the United States. Because yeah. fascism okay. and nationalism were very popular in the 1930s in uh, European countries. Uh, they right. actually prospered and were thought to be kind of many of them forward looking, and and people didn't, uh, have all of the dark associations. I mean, they had some, they didn't have all of the dark associations with fascism that we have, uh, in the, you know, in the, in the full light of what happened after World War II. The thing
1: right. was, and there were a few there. fellow travelers here in the U.S. with silver shirts, William Pelly in the silver shirts, and Robert Noble and a few other people, um, who were, in and, and the Klan, who were in sympathy with, uh, Kuhn, and occasionally had like, Meetings with each other, friends
0: like, like that, that. Um,
1: yeah. But uh-huh. again, they were a small, loud, very right. loud yeah. uh, minority, yeah. it's and scary thing. doomed to failure. But they were, they wanted to tie themselves in. We are devoted to American principles.
0: Uh huh. All right. So, well, like, uh, doomed them to failure. Yeah. Right. So um, we have taken up a huge amount of your time, Arnie, and I want to say thank you very much. And I know you rearranged your schedule just to do this interview, and I'm very happy that you did. And as you know, we have a traditional final question on new books in history. And that is, um, and you can answer it any way you like, uh, what are okay. you working on now?
1: Um, I like to call it, we're not talking about it, <laughs> but let's just say I have this fascination and a real talent for, for- Not only Forgotten Stories in History, but Forgotten Stories about very unsavory people in American history. Um, (laughs) And I will leave it there. And, of course, the other thing I'm working on is promoting the book, which is almost their full-time job. Yeah, no, I imagine it
0: is these days. I imagine it is. Well, I wish you luck on it, and I hope everybody goes out and reads it. It's very readable, very interesting. And like I said, this is a part of American history that you won't hear anything about. And Arnie does a good job of uh, kind of bringing it to life for us. So I really encourage people uh, to read it. Um, um, I want to say thank you, Arnie, for being on the show. Can I get my website? You if absolutely you can. You, you go ahead. No, sure, absolutely. Okay,
1: yeah, it's my name, uh, Arnie Bernstein. www.arniebernstein.com. Uh, and uh, you know, Facebook or Twitter, however you want to find me. Um, and there's certainly more information about the book there.
0: Yeah, go look there, everybody. There's a, yeah, sure. It's, it's 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 a terrific resource, and and uh, you know, there are lots of places to buy books on the internet, and I'm sure you can find a way to buy this one. So, anyway, as I said, Arnie, thanks very much for writing the book, and thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. Uh, And thank everyone in the audience for listening. I just want to say that I am uh, Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. Today we've been talking to Arnie Bernstein about his book, Swastika Nation, Fritz Kuhn and the Rise and Fall of the German-American Bund. And so this is uh, the New Books Network signing off. Have a good week.